Welcome to Weaver Beyond the Numbers, where Weaver professionals talk about business and accounting. We'll explore a wide variety of topics from tax law and accounting standard changes to managing cyber, fraud, financial, and operational risks. What do these issues mean to your business? Join us as we go beyond the numbers to find out. Welcome to Weaver Beyond the Numbers. I'm your host, Shelby Skirhawk. So what's the deal with CBD? And no, I'm not doing a very bad, very, very bad Jerry Seinfeld impression, but I'm repeating a question that many businesses, individuals, and everyday consumers have asked about the proliferation of marijuana, uh, CBD throughout the country. And really, it seems like the answers are clear as mud. So to help clear up the confusion and get a better understanding of financial compliance for the marijuana industry is Rachel Mondragon, Senior Manager in Regulatory Compliance, specializing in financial institutions at Weaver. Rachel, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. So now before we dive in, I feel like I kind of need to fact check my terminology here from the intro because is the marijuana industry, is that the correct term in terms of of what it encompasses? I know like, for example, CBD oil companies, they, they work hard to educate people and make them understand that what they're purchasing like in a store, for example, that's not marijuana per se. So what's, I guess, what's the terminology that we should agree on? Is marijuana industry correct? Um, It depends. Marijuana, the term we first heard back in the 70s, when the federal government uh, made marijuana, which was the term that they used, illegal. It was illegal to possess it, manufacture, distribute. Um, So really, you couldn't have anything to do with marijuana. Today, we know that the actual plant that is known as marijuana, is a type of cannabis. And part of the cannabis are certain chemicals, such as THC and CBD. So you could technically call it marijuana, but again, it really just depends on how technical you want to get. Is cannabis then probably the better term to encompass everything? Sure, you could. I mean, it just depends on the particular situation at hand. Congress has sort of defined what they deem industrialized hemp has no more than 0.3% THC. So anything above that amount of THC, you could essentially equate to marijuana. So there are three types of cannabis species. The cannabis sativa L is the one that commonly referred to as marijuana. There are other two types, cannabis ruberellus and cannabis indica. But the one that you commonly refer to and that we're talking about is cannabis sativa L. So for our purposes today, we could say that the cannabis plant has uh, different, uh, different elements, different strands to it, but we're largely talking about the industrialized hemp, some of the medicinal purposes. And really, the big picture that we're, we're talking about is how banks and financial institutions, how they can start to broach uh, working with some of these CBD and cannabis businesses. Right. And that's how Weaver came about seeing the need 
to look into this industry further. We were constantly receiving questions from existing clients or questions from just people in the industry wanting to know Weaver's take about what was going on, what is legal, what is not legal, because despite the fact that in the state of Texas, recent legislation has been passed, the fact is, is that CBD has been sold in the state of Texas for quite some time now. So you might say it was sold even before it was legal to sell. Uh, Was that more of a gray area and it, it wasn't explicitly prohibited? Well, even at the national level, Let's let's take a step back and talk about the potential issue about is this legal or illegal. So in 1970, Congress passed the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act, commonly known as the Controlled Substance Act. So when that was passed at the federal level, you cannot possess any type of marijuana. So regardless of Again, back then, they weren't making any distinction about CBD, THC. That wasn't until way later. So what the industry saw was, beginning with the state of California, at the state level, sort of one by one, uh, with California leading the charge, you had the states making the argument that, at a very minimum, from a medicinal standpoint, this drug or plant could be used uh, in a positive way to help people deal with various different types of illnesses and symptoms, side effects, etc. And the fact that the national government was uh, simply putting a complete stop to that really didn't allow for the medical industry to study it, perform studies, double-blind studies, to understand it even more. So With every drug that's currently on the market, you have to have years of research to understand what are the long-term effects. How does uh, this potential drug interact with other drugs? How does this drug affect children or even pets? Um, Because some of you may notice that your vet might even have uh, CBD oil or some other type of marijuana-related substance in your lobby at the vet clinic. Um, So the purpose behind all of the studies is to be knowledgeable about the effects so that you can make the public aware. So because at the federal level, it was completely illegal, that really put a stop to understanding all of the potential drawbacks and positives of the use of this plant. So Like I said, one by one, the states sort of started passing their own legislature. Um, And if you look into it at the state level, it's very interesting because some of them have decriminalized it completely. In other words, you can have certain amount of plants growing on your property. Um, You can have certain ounces of dried plant. You can have that on you up to a certain amount of ounces You can gift marijuana up to a certain ounces, although you can't collect a fee for it. But um, so at at the state level, every state has their own guidance as to what they will allow and not allow. 
Well, I thought it was interesting. So you had put together a uh, pretty comprehensive presentation called the ABCs of MRBs and CBDs for the San Antonio Compliance Association. So one thing I didn't uh, realize is that in the 1850s, it was actually sold in U.S. pharmacies. It was used to treat nausea and pain, uh, loss of appetite, a lot of symptoms of illnesses and conditions uh, that at one point it was sold in drugstores. Fast forward to today, the Controlled Substance Act that uh, made all forms of it illegal, I think that's where also a lot of public understanding uh, really got clouded because then it became criminalized. So then all of a sudden in later years in 2018 with the Farm Bill, it was starting to open the door little by little uh, for some of these other elements of, like you said, hemp and pieces of the medicinal plant itself that if you weren't paying attention, you'd be like, wait, why are all these marijuana shops showing up all over the place? It's the medicinal part of it. And something that you mentioned was the industrialized hemp. I wanted to understand what is being sold in these dispensaries, if that's if that is the right term, uh, for CBD. What is the, I guess, the actual product that we're talking about? So let's dissect that just a little bit. Let's talk about the farm bill. Before the 2018 farm bill, there was the 2014 farm bill. Um, and that's where we first heard the term industrialized hemp that defined industrialized hemp as uh, the type of marijuana that had no more than 0.3% THC, which is also referred to as tetrahydrocannabinol. And that's the psychoactive part. That's the quote-unquote high. Right. That's the element that is naturally found within the plant. After it was referred to as industrial hemp, that was, I think, really where the public started making a distinction between the various different chemicals or cannabinoids that are found within the cannabis plant itself. Again, one of them being THC, the other being CBD. And I think we should um, probably have the disclaimer here that uh, when we start to talk about the financial uh, compliance element of this, you know, it's still in essential to consult your employer's legal counsel before determining kind of how your institution should handle particular uh, marijuana-related scenarios. And, of course, you know, the content of, of this podcast is um, – Educational and informative. Uh, we're, we're not lawyers. We're not. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> do, please do not go back to your employer yeah. and make substantive change based on this uh, information only. It, it really should just be educational. And we're not trying to sway anyone one side or another. It's simple, just a presentation of information as well as the potential risks. Uh, but definitely seek legal counsel before um, you make any substantive policy changes. Well, so let's talk about the uh, financial compliance element of this. We explained the specific challenge that CBD businesses, for example, have in banking and, and working with financial institutions. Certainly. So banking institutions, uh, they're very knowledgeable about what is allowed from a legal standpoint, especially at the federal level. Um, So again, it wasn't until 2019 that the state of Texas has passed a um, legislature where this 
some form of this product is now allowed. So understandably, you have financial institutions that are leaning towards banking this type of client, um, but they're obviously hesitating. And I would say the first part of that is uh, the lack of knowledge, the lack of understanding. Again, when we make a distinction between marijuana, THC, CBD, those sort of things. Um, and so the, I would say at the first, at the very basic level, it's a lack of knowledge. But also, secondly, again, the Controlled Substance Act still holds marijuana as a Scheduled One prohibited drug. So from a anything more than the allowable THC level is still illegal from the federal standpoint. Um, but at the same time, these financial institutions can't deny the fact that there are current financial institutions that have taken this leap and said, you know what, these people have to bank somewhere. We're going to do this. This is a niche we want to go into. And, you know, we're taking that risk. And at this point, it, it and I would say it's still a risk-based uh, decision, whether or not they ultimately want to head in that direction. And even still, if they head in that direction, they should make it clear what sort of clients they will take and which ones they will not. I mean, you have to really establish your written policies and procedures, if not to educate your employees, but also to prove to your regulators that that you've done your homework, that you know which direction you want to head into um, from a business standpoint. Uh, but that also you won't participate in illegal forms of this product or industry. If I'm a banker that is considering taking on a CBD company uh, or a, you know a chain of stores as a client, uh, what kind of due diligence do I need to undergo or, or take to make sure that I'm not entering into anything illegal? Right. Well. Again, obviously, with the passage at the state level, uh, at the very minimum, you want to know what the state requires as far as the labeling and um, any the licensing, which may be required. So you'll want to be aware of the state requirements. But also, you'll want to understand if this customer is selling a product, do they know who manufactured this product? And can you, the banker, then sort of trace it back to the manufacturer where at least you can see some sort of reports, scientific reports that tell you how much THC is in this product? Um, I've actually seen some of those reports. Very interesting. Um, that particular company that generated the report was out of Colorado, so they've they've had a lot more time than Texas to sort of get up to speed. Um, and and of course, you can require your customer to provide this to you periodically, if you not just at first for your initial due diligence, but also periodically. That's one thing. That's one of the risks I would say to a current financial institution is that you know, given this type of customer and the innate higher risk that it poses to your bank, um, you really need to keep a closer watch on them 
periodically. So if it's quarterly or every six months, whatever your institution is comfortable with. But you will want to stay on top of them, uh, perhaps do site visits. So yeah, just show up and um, make sure that they're selling what they say they will be selling. Another thing about a site visit is that you can possibly identify whether or not they're engaged in other types of transactions that they may not have disclosed to you. Uh, For example, if they have an on-site ATM, that's a potential issue from a banking slash money laundering perspective. So that's not allowed to have an ATM on site. They can have an ATM on site. That's not illegal. But for instance, if, if you want me to bank you and you are the CBD shop, I should have an initial set of questions that I go through with you. And obviously, I want you to be as forthcoming as possible. Because again, I'm trying to determine the I already know you're risky, but I'm trying to determine exactly how risky you you are. So, so I'll probably ask you how many locations do you have, right? Um, how many employees? What types of um, payment will you accept? Are you a cash only place? Do you want to sort of look into uh, debit or credit card capabilities? So again, from a money laundering perspective, all of those types of questions really make a difference. Because as bankers know, the more types of payments that they accept, then obviously that adds to your periodic and ongoing due diligence. Um, what the, Another one of those questions would probably be, do you have an on-site ATM? What is the big deal with an on-site ATM? Well, is it yours? Do you own it and operate it? And if so, do you refill it then? That's the big potential money laundering concern is, are you going to take cash from my institution to refill your ATM? And if so, now all of a sudden I have an understanding that I should be seeing this type of activity going through my institution, as well as any time that you do and it's over a certain amount, I have other responsibilities from a reporting standpoint. Um, So it does play a role, again, in the innate level of risk. Now, there are some third-party companies that will give the CBD shop a percentage of the ATM fees if they allow them to put their ATM on their site. So in other words, um, yes, there's an ATM there, but it doesn't belong to the CBD shop. They're not refilling it. They're not responsible for that. So again, there's a difference there. And if there is one, you will want to understand who's responsible for operating it and refilling it. And when we're talking about cash, that's how a lot of the CBD shops began. They were not able to accept debit and other forms, so they were largely cash-only operations. And I would suspect they still are. But again, as the uh, public has sort of grown to be comfortable with this type of sale taking place, and again, with more and more banks, which is something that the industry is seeing evidence of. We're seeing more banks taking the plunge and banking this type of customer because they're, again, they have to bank somewhere. And so it's better for them to do it in front of us, so to speak, rather than trying to go under the radar and, and get their banking services elsewhere. 
Uh, I want to talk about some of the benefits that uh, that financial institutions that are considering accepting CBD shops as clients, what exists there. But I wanted to, I guess, do a little bit of a, a common sense check. So this is really unusual that a bank would have such a fine line that they need to deal with between legal and illegal if they choose to bank a pet store. Maybe they're choosing to bank a restaurant. Uh, choosing to bank a CBD shop, it's, again, it kind of blows my mind thinking that they that there is so much risk that, is there a precedent for this? Have, have banks and financial institutions ever faced this type of dilemma where they're needing to be sure that their clients that they're taking on is the difference between legal and illegal activity? Well, you, you have to remember that banks have a responsibility at the federal level, as well as in their local state community. So again, at the federal level, for the most part, um, it is still illegal, right? And so, or at least until Congress moves that target and says, okay, we're going to create a whole new allowable type of uh, marijuana that has this amount to this amount THC, that sort of thing. But until then, it's still illegal at the federal standpoint. Now, bankers um, know, and 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 people that are not in the banking industry probably would not know this, but banks have a responsibility to file certain documents when they suspect that something's going on with their customer that shouldn't be going on. Um, these are reports that are highly confidential. You would never know that they have been reported on you if you were the customer, so to speak. And so that's really where it comes into play is the banker has to look at it with various different lenses. So again, federal, we already know it's illegal. But are you still willing to take that plunge? If the answer to that is yes, then you should be accepting of A, B, C, and D, in other words. You should know that it will come with potential filing of a currency transaction report or a CTR. Um, It will require more time from your employees dedicated to this particular customer. Now, let's just say that the bank does open its doors to this type of customer. You better bet that word's going to get around and you're going to have more and more of this type of clientele wanting to do business with you, which is a good thing. So you want to make sure that the fees that you're charging are substantiated, that you're still going to turn a profit. But again, do you have enough employees to, to to get this off the ground? Are you only going to allow um, this type of service for a certain number of CBD shops to start off? I would say, you know, if you want to take a stab at maybe 50 CBD shops at first to see how you do, sort of test the waters and um, see how you cope, are you able to keep up with their demand, uh, with their services, and is the fee generation sufficient to support that? And then afterwards, if you start getting comfortable, if you are seeing the benefit of this customer type, then perhaps you would increase that to 100 CBD shops. So, you know, there there isn't one way to do this, but there are various risks that you need to be aware of. And so 
every institution is going to find their own sort of roadmap as to which direction they head into and how they plan on doing it. So again, if I'm a banker and I'm considering uh, taking this risk in, in banking a CBD shop, there obviously has to be some, uh, some substantial advantages to that, and that's uh, market share and profitability. Uh, the, the industry itself, of course, is, is skyrocketing. I can point to a, a number, a 2016 number that says that consumer CBD sales totaled $262 million. Uh, but that same data released is predicting that by the year 2022, that could be $1.8 billion. Even other reports show that the industry could reach $22 billion in the near future. Uh, those are staggering amounts for an industry that is really skyrocketing. Right. As a banker, you obviously have seen or or it's very likely that you've seen these trends. Again, even in your local neighborhood, you've probably already have one or two businesses that offer this type of product. I mean, to be honest with you, I was at the grocery store the other day and saw in the vitamin aisle mm-hmm. a type of CBD product at the grocery store. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a CBD shop. Um, these products are being manufactured and distributed elsewhere. Um, so that's another consideration. So it's not going to disappear anytime soon. And I would say, you know, bankers that are looking at potentially banking this type of customer, again, I, I think there is profit to be made because, you know, that that is ultimately what we're what a bank is in the business of of doing. But just do so knowing that there are potential things that you need to follow up on and continue to stay on as far as information, verification, documentation, that sort of thing. To uh, kind of summarize the discussion we've had today, if there was one fact or uh, just one element that you want the listeners to really take away from our discussion today about financial compliance of CBD, what would that be? So to people in the banking industry, they're already familiar with what is commonly referred to as the Cole Memo, which was um, at that time, it was a memorandum uh, in 2013 that was published and it had eight priorities is the term that was used referring to marijuana related conduct. Um, So it was very vague in what it considers marijuana related conduct. I mean, that that really could be anything, but it did establish eight priorities as well as three different types of suspicious activity reports, which are those reports that I was referring to that at a federal level, a bank must file. And so at that time, that was kind of like the Bible for banks to legally bank this type of customer or provide services to this type of customer. As long as they followed the guidance in the cold memo, they really felt safe in doing so. Now, what happened was um, the Cole memo was rescinded by, at that time, Attorney General Sessions, really overnight. And that was when the banks sort of found themselves in this dilemma 
where they may have already been banking this type of customer. Now, all of a sudden, they kind of feel like they have to exit uh, that business. So definitely, I would say that's when, when bankers started feeling the pinch of all of a sudden, is this legal or illegal? That sort of, that sort of um, sense. In 2014, the Financial Crime Enforcement Network, or FinCEN, issued guidance that was primarily based on the Cole Memo. FinCEN is a um, department of the United States Treasury, and they usually publish guidance that the banking industry really sort of takes at its face value and use it to substantiate their business operations from a suspicious activity monitoring money laundering perspective. In other words, FinCEN usually publishes guidance that helps bankers comply with federal expectations that would exist. So my advice to a bank that is considering this type of customer is document, outline the potential risks that are involved with the level of participation that you're willing to to get into, and at a very minimum, comply with the 2014 FinCEN guidance, as well as the Cole Memo, although the Cole Memo, uh, that rescission of the Cole Memo has not been rescinded. So in other words, it's still rescinded, but it's good guidance nonetheless. Just make sure that your policies and procedures are well thought out so that you can support why you decided to go into this direction. Well, I think you've certainly given us a lot to think about, and you've helped sort out all of the the, the gray area because it's a very confusing area. The fact that it's still illegal federally, but state at the state level, there's different elements of it. It's uh, it's certainly not cut and dry, uh, but it certainly makes, uh, I think, for an interesting podcast. Definitely. Thank you so much for joining me today, Rachel. Thank you for inviting me. And that does it for this episode of Weaver Beyond the Numbers. For more information, insight, and podcasts, visit weaver.com. To help sort out your questions, uh, you can email Rachel at rachel, R-A-C-H-E-L dot mondragon at weaver.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Shelby Skirhawk. Thanks for listening to this episode of our podcast. Subscribe and tune back in for more Weaver Beyond the Numbers.